the best time of the day show. Well, it's a new year, new podcasts. Well, we'll be doing a whole lot more in 2020, without a doubt. Happy New Year. But we thought just to round off, if you like, 2019 and get into 2020, is we'd give you six of the very best podcasts. Six that you may have missed out on if you haven't heard every single one of them. But then again, if you have heard them before, it's like welcoming back an old friend. I've mentioned before that one of the highlights of my my job over the years has been actually to go out and do lots of things that uh, you wouldn't necessarily get the chance to do and also to actually meet listeners because after all without you the listener the whole point point of being on the radio is totally utterly pointless so uh in local radio you do meet the listeners on a regular basis she's absolutely marvelous and occasionally and this is what we used to do from time to time you can sell them things uh which is always very useful as well and also you know what's better coming up to christmas than the idea of a listener's trip somewhere that's a lot of fun and so therefore when i was in hull they hit upon the idea of a listener's train trip to london now the thing was as i recall it started off from hull paragon station then it somehow ended up in grimsby which meant it had to go all the way around this before the yeah yes they had to go all the way around to then to ghoul and places like that picking listeners up on the way then it had to go all the way to london if you've never hired a train before, not that I have, but uh, if you never hired a train before, there's one or two downsides to it. Uh, one, you don't get the rolling stock that there would be on the usual mainline services, schedule services, okay? And schedule services have priority. So what you do get is some steaming old train which takes forever to get where you want to go. So the idea was entertainment and entertainment we provided so there was a presenter assigned to every carriage i think there's only about four carriages uh, but it is sold out within seconds and it was marvelous and so we had all sorts of games and things like that and okay the audience being slightly elderly uh meant that uh, you know there was there's certain things you you, you didn't, wouldn't do twister for instance with uh, the or anything like that but you know we had quizzes and things like that and we gave out sweets and, and generally we had sing songs and things like that which is a brilliant brilliant way of spending the time and everyone going down to london of course because most of the audience you know very seldom very rarely actually went to london anyway because there's no reason to but the idea of going with their favorite presenters uh, all the way down to london to do some christmas shopping at oxford street or whatever and then come back again was just too good to miss and also the fact is uh, i think probably that the tickets were heavily discounted which meant it probably cost them 50 pence return uh, to go all the way to london and back the downside of course was they were sitting in a terribly uncomfortable train which took about seven hours to get there and again a further downside is if you wanted to get back the same day which you did uh, i'm not entirely sure of the uh, of the uh, the timetabling but uh, it did start very early in the morning and we got back very late at night and i think again memory may play tricks i think we had four minutes to do the christmas shopping in oxford street before we had to get back on the train and then of course it'd be like a school trip you felt like a teacher a teacher with pensioners under your charge of trying to herd them all back onto the train to work out and counting people in the carriages to make sure that uh, you got them all on the train on the way back and in the words of the late brian hanrahan we counted them out and we counted them all back again uh, and also i took away a, a souvenir from that mid way i think I, by the time we'd got to ghoul i started to sneeze and i've never had a <laughs> such a worse cold in my life you know i lost my <laughs> 
pints of liquid and the window of the train steamed up so, was just, so part of the entertainment for the the pensioners was finding someone who was in worse physical shape than they were uh, sneezing my way to and from London for our four minutes of shopping now over the years I've worked with some amazing characters at radio stations up and down the land and there was a character. The radio station will remain anonymous because I think this gentleman is still alive. But he was a small chap who was renowned for having an absolutely vile temper. Now, this is probably because it might be that small man syndrome. To me, he was absolutely fine. But if things had gone wrong professionally, then the red mist would come down and he would go absolutely berserk. They'd be screaming and shouting and stamping a feet, things being thrown around, all this sort of stuff. And he go, all right. So he gained the name Mickey Meltdown as a result. You know, uh-oh, it's Mickey. He's going to have a meltdown. And he'll just get out of the way because he'd be furious. And he'd be up two minutes later, he'd be absolutely fine, you know, in the pub, buying the drinks, this sort of thing. So he's a, nice, he's a nice man and a very good journalist. He was a journalist. Now, the thing I learned early on is journalists are very good at doing journalism. When it comes to operating technical equipment, they're shit. So therefore, Mickey Meltdown had been sent out in the radio car to record an interview with this chap. And off he'd gone with his ewer, which was a, a, a very heavy... My, I, my shoulder is twinging as I'm relating this. For all this, it weighed a tonne. And it was a reel-to-reel tape recording. It was a, supposedly a portable recorder. Now I can use your iPhone, but back then you had these. And he'd gone off to record this interview. And he'd come back... And so what he had to do was he had to send this piece of tape, effectively, from the radio car back to the radio station so they could then play it out. And so, therefore, he had to read the details of what it was all about to start off with. It was called the Q material. You know, you know, and we, we invariably began with, and I so-and-so, so, so, uh, such-and-such, such interview, so-and-so, and I started by asking him, so, OK, fine. And then press the button, and off the tape would go back to the studio. So, anyway, got it all set up, got the aerial up, that's fine. He got in touch with the stu- with the studio. Uh, I'm here. All right. Okay. Uh, just send it across when you're ready. Okay. Right. Just what's the cue material? So and so and so. The guy who's in charge of such and such started by asking him. There was silence. Not getting that. Oh, hang on. So and so and so. I started by asking him. Uh, we're not getting it. I'm afraid. Well, I'm pressing all the right buttons here. You can hear he's trying to get a bit twitchy. Um. Sorry, mate. No, we, we we can't hear it. Have you selected so and so? Of course, I have. You know, all right. Are you sure? Yes. Right. This instructions. I've read the instructions. Okay. Okay. Have another go then. So no, no, no. Started by asking him. Still not getting it. What? You're not getting it. That's this bloody machine is rubbish. Christ alive! Oh God. Look, just calm yourself. I am calm. Let's calm yourself, and we'll just get this sorted out. Okay. Now. Look in front of you. The selection should say Mike to line. Press the button. When you've read the cue, press the button marked line, okay? Yeah, okay, fine. Oh, sorry, okay, okay. sorry about asking him. I still not get it. And then there was all there was just silence. And we could just hear just sound very quiet weeping. Thanks to you over the years. You've come up with some brilliant ideas on the late night show I used to do on Radio 2. And uh, one of them was actually the whole idea that just because you're a famous person, in what way does that make you a better person or more important than someone like us, for instance? 
So someone you actually see on the television, why should their opinion or whatever they do be more important than ours? Or why should they get preferential treatment to us? So that's where we started from. And then we got on the idea of if you meet a famous person, why do you ask for their signature? The whole idea of autographs is very, I've got autographs. Books have been signed by authors and things like that. But you think, really, why? Where did that come from? Hello, you're a famous person. Yes. I want your signature on a piece of paper, please, which I should probably, I'll lose at some point. Uh, or if I don't get it, you know, another signature to authenticate it, I'll never be able to sell it on eBay 20 years later when you're dead. So what is the point of autographs? And then, of course, it struck us. What better way? Because, you know, there's celebs and there's celebs who are awfully smug. And frankly, you think to yourself, if there's somebody you don't particularly, not particularly keen on, you think, well, they're a bit of a talent vacuum. How did that happen? Uh, and they think, oh, you want my autograph, do you? Thinking, well, actually, no. But rather than be rude, maybe we can think of an alternative way of doing it. And we came up with this plan, which was if you see a famous person in the street or maybe you know where you've gone to a gig and they were performing and you saw them in the bar afterwards or something like that a book signing why not give them your autograph because after all it's an egalitarian thing <laughs> you are just as important as they are so why not and so therefore we started on this and we were getting reports in from all over the place Apparently, Scylla Black was getting rather annoyed <laughs> the number of people who gave them their autograph. And um, and I can't remember, there was an England football manager that someone met at he saw at Heathrow and handed them, they went, hello there. And went, oh, that sort of, oh, the flicker of recognition. You're obviously reaching for the pen. I thought I'd give you this. And, handed them, and he, he looked at it, tore it up and stamped on it. So therefore, it just goes to show you can tell the person, you can tell the calibre of the famous person with A, they find it funny, or B, they get furiously offended when that actually happens. And I, th I gather, I don't know how true this is, because I've not actually spoken to him about it, but uh, Roy Wood, actually, <laughs> when some profited in autograph, said, oh, not that bloke on the radio again, he's always doing this. So uh, that was actually a win-win for real people against the famous. And, you know, most of them, most of the celebs, I'm delighted to say that we I heard about that you gave your autograph to took it in good part you know one or two of them less so which you go right if you ever want to know about the websites are full of you know what such and such like as a human being oh he's really nice oh i hated him sort of thing so you can tell offer a famous person your autograph if they think it's funny they're all right if they don't destroy all their record and books and everything now i've referred to my dad on these podcasts before my dad bless him 92 now going to 93 and and he, he needs another two years and then he'll have spent more time retired than he did working but he was a gp he was a doctor and uh, as befits middle class folk uh, we used to go on holiday abroad well this actually happened after we went to wales one june and it snowed and my mother put her foot down so we went abroad after that and the first time we went we went to mallorca which is terribly exciting and we arrived and the next morning, the first person arrived who went, um, I've heard you're a doctor. It's me dad on the Sunday lounge. You're thinking two weeks of bliss, get away from work and all the stress and the patients. What? I hear you're a doctor. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because it says uh, on the ledger, Dr. Lester. Yes. Um, can you have a look at my leg? Go, well, uh, all right. And then 
every day it was like there was a quasi surgery going on uh, oh look you're in you're in spain oh i don't want to touch any of them foreign doctors doctor you know you're a good british doctor you are well look i've not come prepared and i'm you're not one of my patients no 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 that's fine what about this boil what do you think of that sort of pants coming down oh for goodness sake putting me off his lunch and then of course after a couple of three days the shit started didn't they doctor i feel terrible what have you been doing well i had and they're a great long list of 85 pints of lager 47 cuba libres you know some hot dogs and uh, something they bought off the side of the road from some bloke who seemed quite friendly but they didn't know what it was and the end result was all these people with as my mother would term it bilious attacks uh turning up a great long list of people uh, and he's just thinking this is just madness and he didn't have a good holiday at all so when he came home he said right from now on i am mr lester when we go on holiday do not tell we were kids we were sworn to secrecy do not tell anybody all right fine okay and that's how it happened until one day uh, one holiday i my sister and i weren't there actually they were in my mum and my dad were in greece and they always like doing improving things. So we're looking at the Parthenon and all that sort of stuff. And they were, you got guided tours in those days. So out in the hot sun, a crowd of well, middle-aged and elderly people with the guide droning away about the, the, the Elgin, wanting the Elgin marbles back again and things like that. And suddenly there was a thud and one of the, of the, uh, the tourists had fainted. So always keen to help. Other members of the party dragged this hapless woman and lent her against a pillar. Now, this is what I learned from my dad telling me this story and also my attempt at first aid. I have a bronze Duke of Edinburgh award, I hasten to point out. Uh, that's the wrong way round. If someone faints, you need to get the blood back to their head again. So put them upside down. So my father, seeing this rather terrible attempt at first aid, thought, oh, God, here we go. <sighs> so he sorted out. And just as a lady broke ranks from the other side of this sort of semicircle around this guide and went towards, and they, they knelt down together in unison to turn with practised ease to turn this hapless, fainted woman upside down so her legs were up against the pillar so the blood could actually drain down to her head. The woman said, Are you a doctor? And he went, Yes. And she said, So am I. Don't tell anybody. One of the reasons I enjoy doing this podcast is that I can tell some of the tales I wasn't allowed to tell on the radio. And I've mentioned right at the start of our podcast, if you're joining us for the first time, by the way, do go right back to the beginning and they're all there and binge on them. Because early on, I talked about a friend of mine who actually worked for a top shelf magazine back in the 80s uh, for an editor that they hated. And so much so they did terrible things to his coffee cups. Now, to find that out, you need actually to go back and listen. And uh, one other thing that actually happened was that when he was out of his office at usually at some sort of free lunch somewhere they would go in and have a look through his desk to see what was going on just to, to check now because he was um uh, the editor and owner of a, a top shelf magazine back in the days when magazines were important in the same way because there was the limited uh, places to advertise advertise things which you couldn't advertise in mainstream publications like uh, tobacco and alcohol for instance but it also meant that the editor got lots of uh, freebies not only boxes and boxes of cigars and gallons of gin but he got other bits of new technology as well it also had articles they tried to make it into a sort of british version of playboy and so it would have uh, you know it would have learned articles about uh, you know the space shuttle and, and things like this and so people would send him things and on one occasion the editor got a polaroid camera 
Now, what do you do if you get a Polaroid camera? Yeah, you take pictures of your family. I remember my dad got a Polaroid camera and he took a picture of me, which I still have, you know, in my school uniform. And we sat there and waited for it to, to pop out and be developed and everything like that. And looked at it and thought, all oh, right. So now I put it in my photo album, which I still have to this day. No, not this guy. So rummaging through uh, his desk when he was out at some enormous lunch, free lunch, uh, with his directors or whatever, they came across a clutch of polaroid pictures because he'd been given a polaroid camera so what would they be bearing in mind is a top shelf magazine did they discover you know pictures of naked ladies because after all that's the you know, that was the thing about working for that magazine apparently you could put all your effort into writing something really learned about the space shuttle but you knew that basically whoever bought it only wanted the the, the nudes so what did they find pictures of his family taken with the polaroid camera nope pictures of his cook so this guy, he must have used an entire film, you know, took a bit, it, it, he took dick pics from every angle, this guy. And they said it was, they said it was slightly blurred. Um, it didn't look very large and the greying pubic hair. It was, it really wasn't very nice to look at. Said, well, he looked, I said, yeah, I know, but we just wondered what he got to. But also we knew that if he caused us any real trouble, we could just say, we've seen your dick pics and that would shut him up. I don't think they ever had to do that, however, because he sold the magazine from under them before they had a chance to retaliate. Starting my career as a sort of gopher at BBC Radio Birmingham back in 1977, the heart of the nation station, I sort of got a job in my final year at college helping out on the breakfast show called Heart of the Nation. And uh, I used to show guests in and get them cups of coffee and, and things like that, and, and then graduated to... Uh, editing tapes and stuff like that so uh, this was a brilliant uh, career grounding if you like um also one of the things i had to do was to look after the presenter have a suspicion that this chap lovely man as he is or was is no longer with us uh, i think probably his habits actually i'm about to explain would mean that he isn't with us any longer uh, and he was wonderfully wonderfully well spoken i think he'd had a career in the world service or probably the empire service because he was quite elderly uh, back in the 70s so he'd probably be well over 100 by now had he survived though in fact he'd probably well so well pickled that in fact he could be around and looking even younger uh, than uh, we all do uh, but um, he would say to me uh special tea boy and i would go into the studio and he would give me a five pence piece or two pence piece or whatever it was back then and a special tea meant going to the coffee machine at the end of the corridor which is one of those horrible max pack things and putting in your two pence or whatever and selecting tea okay what was special about that i hear you cry nothing but then i had to go around to the newsroom and open his briefcase and in this briefcase genuinely no word of a lie was nothing but a bottle of vat 69 so therefore you pour a little bit of the, of the tea away and pot top it up with the whiskey and take it back into the studio and hand it to him whereupon thank you boy and he'd carry on he smoked sort of untipped park drive cigarettes as well so the thing was he used to have guests in there as well and i remember some MP from Birmingham coming in and coming out and going, you know what? Has someone had a party in there or something? Crikey, that's terrible smell in there. But there was this wonderful journalist, doyen of broadcasting. I was in the World Service, you know. Uh, <laughs> stuff. Meanwhile, as the programme going on, it's from seven until nine. <laughs> We're getting drunker and drunker, this man. And also I realised I could control him, <laughs> judging by how special I made his tea. So if he'd annoyed me for any reason, he'd been more patronising than normal or whatever, he would get an extra special tea. 
<laughs> which actually corresponded with him starting to drool one morning <laughs> because his diction had gone completely and actually started to slobber on his script in the studio. I think, I think he's a bit specialed up this morning. All right, fine. And so eventually, I think that uh, it was that moment where he was dis- he disappeared uh, shortly after that. I don't think it was a career-ending thing from my point of view, but I just know that uh, uh, that he was one of these people who it was just uh, it was something terrible was just waiting to happen. So I think because he used to have to read the news as well at lunchtime, so he'd do this. He'd have two hours of drunken news and current affairs, then he'd disappear for a couple of hours. He'd come back and slur his ways for the one o'clock news and then it was time to go up to the BBC club to get really stuck in the best time of the day show is back Monday please please stay Best Time of the Day show is a Loading Zone production. La-di-da. 